Chapter Thirteen of the Burning Secret by Stefan Schweig. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen, Dawning Perception. After he had put a long stretch of road between him and the hotel, Edgar stopped running. He was panting heavily, and he had to lean against a tree to get his breath back and recover from the trembling of his knees. The horror of his own deed from which he had been fleeing clutched at his throat and shook him as with a fever. What should he do now? Where should he run away to? He was already feeling a sinking sensation of loneliness there in the woods, only a mile or so from the house. Everything seemed different, unfriendlier, unkinder, now that he was alone and helpless. The trees that only the day before had whispered to him like brothers now gathered together darkly as if in threat. This solitariness in the great unknown world dazed the child. No, he couldn't stand alone yet. But to whom should he go? Of his father, who was easily excited and unapproachable, he was afraid. Besides, his father would send him straight back to his mother, and Edgar preferred the awfulness of the unknown to that. He felt as though he could never look upon his mother's face again without remembering that he had struck her with his fist. His grandmother in Baines occurred to him. She was so sweet and kind, and had always petted him, and come to his rescue when, at home, he was to be the victim of an injustice. He would stay with her until the first storm of wrath had blown over, and then he would write to his parents and ask their forgiveness. In this brief quarter of an hour he had already been so humbled by the mere thought of his inexperienced self standing alone in the world that he cursed the stupid pride that a mere stranger's lying had put into him. He no longer wanted to be anything but the child he had been, obedient and patient and without the arrogance that he now felt to be excessive. But how to reach Baines? He took out his little pocket-book and blessed his luck-star that the ten-dollar gold piece given to him on his birthday was there safe and sound. He had never got himself to break it. Daily he had inspected his purse to see if it was there, and to feast his eyes on the sight of it, and gratefully polish it with his handkerchief until it shone like a tiny sun. But would the ten dollars be enough? He had travelled by train many a time without thinking that one had to pay, and still less how much one paid, whether ten or a hundred dollars. For the first time he got an inkling that there were facts in life upon which he had never reflected and that all the many things that surrounded him he had held in his hands and toyed with somehow contained a value of their own a special importance an hour before he had thought he knew everything now he realized he had passed by a thousand mysteries and problems without noticing them and was ashamed that his poor little wisdom had stumbled over the first step it took into life he grew more and more discouraged and his footsteps lagged as he drew near the station how often he had dreamed of this flight from home, of making a dash for the great life, becoming king or emperor, soldier or poet! And now he looked timidly at the bright little building ahead of him, and thought of nothing but whether his ten dollars would bring him to his grandmother at Baines. The rails stretched away monotonously into the country. The station was deserted. Edgar went to the window shyly and asked, whispering so that nobody but the ticket-seller should hear, how much a ticket to Baines cost. Amused and rather astonished eyes behind spectacles smiled upon the timid child. "'Whole fare or half fare?' Oh, "'Whole fare,' stammered Edgar, utterly without pride. Three dollars and thirty-five cents,' 
Give me a ticket, please. In great relief, Edgar shoved the beloved bit of polished gold under the grating, change rattled on the ledge, and Edgar all at once felt immensely wealthy, holding the strip of coloured paper that guaranteed him his liberty, and with the sound of coin clinking in his pocket. On examining the timetable, he found there would be a train in only twenty minutes, and he retired to a corner to get away from the few people idling on the platform. Though it was evident they were harbouring no suspicions, the child, as if his flight and his crime were branded on his forehead, felt that they were looking at nothing but him, and were wondering why a mere boy such as he should be travelling alone. He drew a great sigh of relief when at last the first whistle sounded in the distance, and the rumbling came closer and closer, and the train that was to carry him out into the great world puffed and snorted into the station. It was not until Edgar took his seat in the train that he noticed he had secured only a third-class passage. Having always travelled first-class, he was again struck with a sense of difference. He saw that there were distinctions that had escaped him. His fellow-passengers were unlike those of his first-class trips, a few Italian labourers, with tough hands and uncouth voices, carrying pickaxes and shovels. They sat directly opposite, dull and disconsolate-eyed, staring into space. They must have been working very hard on the road, for some of them slept in the rattling coach, open-mouthed, leaning against the hard-soiled wood. "'They have been working to earn money,' came into Edgar's mind, and he set to guessing how much they earned, but could not decide. And so another disturbing fact impressed itself upon him, that money was something one did not always have on hand, but had to be made somehow or other. And for the first time he became conscious of having taken the ease in which he had been lapped as a matter of course, and that to the right and the left of him abysms yawned which his eyes had never beheld. It came to him now with the shock of suddenness that there were trades and professions that his life was hedged about by innumerable secrets, close at hand and tangible, though he had never noticed them. Edgar was learning a good deal in that single hour of aloneness, and saw many things as he looked out of his narrow compartment into the great wide world. And for all his dark dread, something began to unfold itself gently within him, not exactly happiness as yet, rather a marvelling at the diversity of life. He had fled, he felt, out of fear and cowardice, yet it was his first independent act and he had experienced something of the reality that he had passed by until then, without heeding it. Perhaps he himself was now as much of a mystery to his mother and father as the world had been to him. It was with different eyes that he looked out of the window. He was now viewing actualities, it seemed to him. A veil had been lifted from all things, and they were showing him the core of their purpose, the secret spring of their actions. Houses flew by as though torn away by the wind, and he pictured to himself the people living in them. Were they rich or poor, happy or unhappy? Were they filled with the same longing as he to know everything? And were there children in those houses like himself, who had merely been playing with things? The flagmen who waved the train no longer seemed like scattered dolls, inanimate objects, toys stationed there by indifferent chance. Edgar now understood that the giving of the signal was their fate, their struggle with life. The wheels turned faster and faster, along serpentine windings the train made its way downward from the uplands. The mountains took on gentler curves and receded into the distance. 
The level was reached, and Edgar gave one final glance backward. There were the mountains, like blue shadows, remote and inaccessible. And to Edgar it was as though his childhood were reposing up there, where they lightly merged with the misty heavens. End of chapter 13